Welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's public debate program. This program engages experts and an invited audience to discussions around cross-cutting issues on peace, security and leadership in Africa. Dr. Peter Kofi da Costa, who passed away on the 18th of August 2019, was vice chair of the ALC's board of trustees, as well as mentor at the center. Dr. da Costa was instrumental in shaping the strategic direction of the ALC's knowledge transfer agenda and projection of the ALC voice to a broader constituency of actors. He steered the center's effort to improve data and research communication so as to upscale the impact and reach of the ALC. In this lecture titled Peter Kofi da Costa and Leadership of Africa's Knowledge Revolution from the Sidelines, delivered by ALC's founding director, Professor Fumi Olonishaken, who is currently Vice President and Vice Principal International at King's College London, Dr. da Costa would be remembered by how he led a knowledge revolution framed by a particular worldview and position in relation to the politics of knowledge. The lecture served as the launch of what will become a part of several legacy projects to be dedicated to his legacy by the center. Thank you so much, uh, Gladwell. I would leave uh, my preambular statement uh, out of this inaugural lecture because I feel that um, amongst yourselves, uh, Shuvai, um, Alex da Costa, and yourself, you have already done justice uh, by way of uh, that kind of introduction, brief introductory remarks that you've made. Uh, I should say that uh, this keynote should take about 30 minutes and 20 seconds. I have said that especially because I know Peter did not want us to waste much time. We wanted us to move on with the statements and get the business of the center rolling. And in that tradition, I want to keep it within the allotted time. This inaugural Peter da Costa lecture presents Peter's life through the prism of the place, the African Leadership Center, to which he contributed a significant amount of his spare working moments, as well as his personal time and attention in the last seven years of his life, even while uh, on his sickbed. It also contains the perspectives of someone who knew him for the better part of 15 years. I recognize that many people uh, present here knew him for much longer. His closest friends and his family, and some knew him for practically all of his life. As such, what I offer you today is a knitted understanding from one of several scenes in Peter da Costa's life. Peter was a real find for the ALC. His philosophical and intellectual DNA and that of the ALCs were identical. The ALC is the theater in which his philosophy and intellectual application will come together for experimentation. The method of application was only emerging and had not yet fully formed uh, when Peter passed. Clearly, our job in the next period is well cut out for us. In the rest of this keynote, I shall present my understanding of Peter da Costa's work and try to tr translate some of his ideas into questions that are embedded in practical realities for today's Africans. 
And therefore, in four parts, I shall present the following. The first will present a bird's eye view of Peter Kofi da Costa. The second will look at what influenced his African knowledge revolution, what I describe as his knowledge revolution. The third will look at the components of that knowledge revolution. And I shall conclude by making some observations about the impact of Peter da Costa on the ALC. So now to that bird's eye view. I would have said that from 2012 until the time of his passing, he was a member of the Board of Trustees and what he did on the board, but that has already been covered. I want to offer a, a short summary of my reflections on Peter by returning to the excerpt uh, from the tribute to Peter Kofi da Costa during the memorial held in London on 4 September 2019. And it goes, we have lost our juggernaut of June, but how could he be lost? What shall we do now that our juggernaut of June is gone? Even tempered, but forceful in his conviction, his voice of justice in reasoning was a powerful influence. He would wade in when deciding the fate of the next generation at the African Leadership Center that he so loved. His unflinching love for Africa and what it could become powered his passion in all spaces. His nurturing presence was a source of assurance to friends, colleagues, and mentees alike. To one group, he was ever present in times of need. To others, his electrifying intellect left an indelible mark. His emphasis on excellence of evidence defined his professional spaces. That was Peter from my own uh, you know, uh, lens. Having offered these personal impressions, I shall now base my analysis of Peter's contributions on two sources. The first is his own narration of his intellectual and practical pursuits, succinctly captured in a two-minute video that is available thanks to Flora and William Hewlett Foundation. The second consists of my observation from his interventions at the African Leadership Center. I want to go through uh, the transcript of that two-minute video, in fact, one minute and 58-second video, um, which provides a capsule summary in Peter's words about his own path. Some of you might have had a chance uh, to see this on the website um, that we use for this memorial. And I start, these are Peter's words. I was born to parents from two different countries in Africa who met when they were students in England during the colonial era. So I am very much a product of a Western system of knowledge. I was brought up in West Africa and the UK. I have always wanted to find out a little bit about how knowledge works and the power dynamics around, around knowledge. I always felt instinctively that it is an unequal world where science is accepted if it comes from certain parts of the world, but that everyone else, including people from where I come from, are recipients of certain types of knowledge and not really actors in shaping it. This led me to study philosophy in the university because I wanted to be able to debate on equal terms. And then I went on to become a journalist because I thought that by being a journalist, I could actually tell the story of communities that generally don't have a voice. At some point, I discovered that journalism is an imperfect science 
because you only tell the story on the day that you have the space to tell the story. And on the next day, you tell another story. So do people exist when you're not telling the story? So I moved to more of a communication type mode, working with communities, with policy actors to try and have more uh, of an interactive engagement to be informed by what people do and what they say, as opposed to just write about them. And that led me into working as a policy communicator, as well as getting into research communication. At some point, I wanted to know more about the evidence. So I went and did a PhD in development studies. And I have been working ever since with research to policy at the nexus between research and policy influence uptake. So I find myself in a space where I'm constantly working with researchers and also trying to grapple with why research has relevance and ways to make research relevant. That was Peter, capsule summary of his career path in his own words. So let me move on to how, what influenced his shaping of this knowledge, African knowledge revolution that I talked about, the second part. My submission is that Peter Dakota led a knowledge revolution framed by a particular worldview and position in relation to the politics of knowledge. On the politics of knowledge, in this regard, rebalancing the unequal power of ideas and knowledge was important to him. Peter grasped the realities of our times. He had a consciousness about the politics of knowledge, which relegates Africa to the periphery of global power. Today's call for the decolonization of knowledge, and particularly decolonizing the academy, is precisely what Peter's philosophy uh, at, at that particular time uh, sought to address. I feel sure he would have had much to say about the prominence uh, of the Black Lives Matter discourse at this time. To be clear, others have spoken very loudly about the overwhelming dominance of Western knowledge systems and, and Eurocentric education in particular. The presumed universality of Eurocentric education and the faulty assumptions about what constitutes objective reality and valid knowledge has captured the minds of Africans and it has truncated progress for our region. Many in our generation and in the generation right after us are trapped by mindset that sees everything Western as holding more validity than our own late realities and knowledges. Colonized power has been found to make victims of those who sustain it, as well as those captured by it. The exclusionary Eurocentric education which dominates Western knowledge systems was not far from Peter's consideration, not because he necessarily wanted to supplant it, but because he believed Africa's own knowledge systems should be in conversation with and talk back to Western knowledge and assumptions for the sake of our own freedom and development. The underlying power inequalities can only be redressed by talking back authoritatively on the basis of our own realities. We have too freely embraced Western expectations and inclination to study Africa as it ought to be instead of how Africa actually is, how we are empirically. The captured minds of African experts within Western institutional context is a subject that was at the core of Peter Dacosta's PhD thesis. According to one of his friends and colleagues, Chidi Odinkalu, who I believe is also here today, of the Open Society Justice Initiative, 
he said, Peter's thinking on development in Africa was crystallized in his PhD work at SOAS. This thesis titled The Rule of Experts, Decomposing Agency and Agendas in Africa's Development Regime, he says, was a masterful treatment of the things that are engaging different parts of our network now. And I have looked at this thesis. I capture here some excerpts from Peter's thesis. My aim, he says, is to explain how experts, their institutions and interactions shape policy discourses and how they both reaffirm and contest dominant development thinking. While the idea of indigenous African expertise is considered an important prerequisite to advancing African ownership, and he says an increasingly insistent discourse in the aftermath of several decades of development failure. But disaggregating African expertise from the wider global pool of expert, experts that has professionalized, if you like, quote unquote, development may be considered futile. This is because, he says, so many experts working on development in Africa, whether African or not, trained in many of the same universities and share a common epistemology. On the face of it, he says, African experts harness the techniques learned in universities in the metropole to adapt dominant global development ideas and approaches to local African realities. In translating the global into forms that can readily be applied and accepted in local contexts, Afri African experts are therefore he says, sub-hegemonic, meaning they support the hegemony of external development ideas. According to this reading of ownership, the role of African expertise in the global division of labor is to adapt and retail policies crafted externally and in the process, making these policies more acceptable to African governments. This bothered me, but in a sense, Peter's work profoundly challenges those of us, myself included, who studied in and now work in Western academies or in Western directed development agencies or even in international non-governmental organizations. We must, I think, develop an even greater consciousness about the ways in which we might be contributing, even if inadvertently, to slowing our continent's progress because of our own captured or colonized minds. So translated in the context of our practical realities today, unquestioning acceptance of any knowledge system, not least that which served to subjugate African societies, this invariably restricts progress. It relegates relationships and processes of developing collective integrity to the shadows. It renders us less visible and less successful in the realization of our collective vision. Of course, in the process, it privileges a select few and sustains exclusionary power dynamics. So rather than a plurality of ideas and knowledges which can truly enrich ways of knowing and of being, we tend to cultivate only one way. This creates unfortunate dualities of being one person by day and another person by night, being considered legitimate in one space and rendered in invisible in another. Invariably, what is good for Mary is not, not good for Mohammed. 
and vice versa. And we set one standard for Kamau and another for Ajoa. It is so easy to construct only one way of life as valid when other ways of life have been written out of history of existence in one clean swoop. The dualities that sustain exclusion and undue privilege tend to thrive when we present only that which has been legitimized as valid knowledge under faulty assumptions and under rules that were made for another place and another time. We research and write endlessly about institutions, many of which are mere shells and not fit for purpose. And of the people who run those institutions, we ask irrelevant questions and think little about the selectiveness of their reach and representation or about how we can rescue the rest of our society from their claws. Think about those lawmakers who enact laws that suit their own selfish ends, while those laws that will liberate the suffering of the majority do not see the light of day. So we research and project only that which is considered worthy in the dominant spaces that are legitimized by a narrow worldview. And we shun what appears unseen and unheard we shun them as irrelevant, even when they give real meaning to the lives of so many. Even African researchers who should know better would say, a research topic is not sexy. That is what the embrace of other knowledges to the detriment of ours has done. It reduces us even in our own eyes, divides us and strengthens the power of inept leaders and dehumanizes us. Ironically, this happens to be true, both for the colonizer and the colonized alike. And we have seen how the responses to COVID-19 have laid all of this bare. It is no wonder that when the colonized mind awakens, it realizes that it was not even a part of the story that they wrote, and that we have been telling other people's stories and leading the lives that were designed for us, of which we did not partake. That is why Peter D'Acosta's mind was alive to the unequal and colonizing politics of knowledge in which science is accepted as valid if it comes from one part of the world, but not from another. He was conscious of our own colonized minds too, as so-called experts, particularly when we work within certain Western institutions. Not all, but quite a number. His career path as a journalist, researcher, and policy communicator is instructive about the multiple and overlapping pathways through which knowledge is acquired and communicated for change. In essence, a knowledge revolution was in the making. It has the potential to open the door and to and project Africa's knowledge systems. So as I go to the third part, I want to examine the components of Peter D'Acosta's African knowledge revolution. It consists of three crucial components. One is about bringing forms, all forms of knowledge to bear. The second is about communicating knowledge in a particular way. And the third is a mode of leadership practice. About the first, all knowledge can and should be brought to bear. Peter thought this and spoke about it, about it in several ways. And I shall come to that. Peter communicated the knowledge revolution that will help the next generation of Africans confidently embrace a plurality of ideas and knowledge systems in which African-led ideas and systems can have prominence on the global stage. 
For Peter, all knowledge could be brought to bear, not just what is considered academically relevant knowledge. In my view, this has some deep connotations and I've tried to reflect on this. See, emotions, sentiments, instincts, humor, even prejudices, for example, these rarely have space in social science research. They are relegated to the realm of irrelevance, intangibles or footnotes, or at best, tucked away in specialized disciplines. That's where you've seen, that's the home of anthropology and a whole range of other dying disciplines. Some actually are very promising in this particular age. Yet in reality, we rarely record human encounters in Africa or indeed world over. It's not just an African issue without deeply emotional, sentimental, humorous, and even judgmental content. And they do not occur in silos, but they are often co-constituted. Invariably, one artificially separates actions and activities that are part of our daily realities and sometimes central to who we are, what we value, what we experience and aspire to. We separate this from the core of what we study and seek to interpret and improve. So at the end of the day, half the story is gone because we have not taken them into account. As far as Peter was concerned, we need to rely more on our own evidence base, including evidence that derives from our values and experiences. He was unapologetic about the need to integrate different forms of evidence into what we quantify and place value on, even when that evidence seems intangible. This means generating evidence from our realities such that values and intangibles coexist and in conversation with the tangible elements of those realities. This is at the crux of the knowledge transformation work that Peter introduced at the African Leadership Center. And so one of the places where this was most apparent at the ALC was in the candidate selection process. We were deliberate from inception in seeking to build a community of leaders who would create a space for transformative discourse on peace, security, and development in Africa. We were especially focused on developing the talent of the next generation of African scholars, analysts, and activists in this space, particularly young women initially, and then mixed, young women and men who generally have no voice in formal peace and security leadership places notwithstanding that they have so much to offer. It is changing, but it's so slow in changing. They still have no leadership space as such um, on these questions. So in this regard, we recruit ALC fellows on the basis of academic excellence and also on the basis of commitment to a set of core values in a bid to prepare next generation analysts and activists for the work of transformation. So therefore, values like African-led ideas of change, and I think Shivai talked about that already, the pursuit of excellence, independent thinking, youth agency, respect for diversity in all of its forms and integrity. Those are things we take into account when we select our fellows. While we developed the methodology for recruitment, which included separate tests of the candidate's commitment to these values, the outcomes were sometimes heavily skewed in favor of candidates that had mastered specific academic methods, and we all know this, and presentation techniques. We were thus faced with uh, three serious questions. First, how do you measure a person's values and potential transformative character? Second, how do you value the intangibles 
that are evident markers of an individual influence, of an individual's influence alongside standard measures of academic performance. How do you measure this without skewing the outcomes in one direction only? Lastly, if excellence in commitment to the core values of the ALC, if, they matter, if it matters just as much as academic excellence, how do you ensure that equal value is placed on these uh, factors during selection? In that process, Dr. D'Acosta was adamant that the intangible, nuanced elements that reflect the potential of a candidate to transform their space ought to be translated into commensurate, quantifiable ranking alongside tangible evidence of academic performance. The work of quantifying these uh, intangible attributes as well as the measurable markers of academic achievement when ranking the performance of ALC candidates was not yet undertaken at the time of Dr. D'Acosta's passing. We had just gotten to a place where we identified this and took the decision to move forward on that basis. This work will form an integral part of the methodology development for ALC's mid-generation review. The ALC Data Laboratory, which Peter was very excited about, will be a repository for this work. To the second element of his uh, uh, African knowledge revolution, the message here is that data and research communication must convey meaning and value. Communicating data and research in our own way with clarity and brevity, using authentic and relevant visible markers of the norms of a group or institution or society while projecting this in the highest quality possible is an important legacy from Peter's mentoring of fellows and staff uh, and associates alike. Communicating research and data in a voice, format, and style that conveys the true meaning and reflection of participants' contribution is an important part of doing research with integrity. When those voices are relegated to the background and the ideas and worldviews that shape their contributions are erased, and even more, when the product of the research is inaccessible, the invisibility of a community is sustained. That is the story of many uh, aspects of African life. Ensuring that data tells the full story and that the real owners of the issues at the core of the research see their realities in the story that is told and their messages conveyed, even if any underlying problem is unresolved, is an, an important element of research communication. The succinctness with which Peter communicated his life story in the two-minute video transcribed for this memorial is an example of the authenticity and simplicity with which all knowledge could be communicated. This is all work, a work in progress at the African Leadership Center. Peter's mentoring was crucial to our associates at the ALC African Radio, as was his support for understanding research uptake. Different ways of communicating knowledge are now being tested. ALC African Radio and the transformation of the ALC Data Lab will be important outcomes in this regard. Third and last of the elements of, the, uh, of his knowledge revolution is about the practice of leadership from the sidelines. And hence the topic of this uh, uh, inaugural Peter da Costa Memorial Lecture. Peter's knowledge revolution was a quiet one, which leaves a trail of influence, perhaps because of his approach to leadership. The real coup was this. In an environment where the mainstream view of leadership is that of individuals located at the top of vertical hierarchies, 
and who typically occupy formal positions of authority. Peter adopted a sharply different mode of operation, making him a perfect fit for the ALC vision and mission. Position-based power was not so important to Peter da Costa. He often shied away from being the center of attention when it came to formal leadership spaces. And those who know him well know this. As Patrick Smith indicated during Peter's uh, memorial in London in 2019, Peter could have held public office in government if he wanted. And I believe that um, uh, Dr. K.Y. Uh, Amwako also uh, reflected on this. But this was never his desire. Rather, he influenced from the sidelines and was highly effective at that. He was a visible team member who provided leadership through his expert power. Operating from the sidelines seemed the preferred strategy uh, for Peter. It enabled him to influence, to motivate, facilitate, inspire, and serve as an impartial, not, not neutral. He was not neutral to injustice, for example. He served as an impartial interlocutor, akin to what a linesman or an assistant referee, as we call them these days, will be in soccer, which Peter loved so much, as you know, as a Liverpool fan. I supported Liverpool Football Club this year because of him, because he never did live to see them uh, win uh, the Champions League again, the, Premier, uh, the Premiership again, rather, after 30 years. Expert power was important to Peter, even though he was conscious of how these two could become hegemonic if it is not directed toward the path of transformation to deliver collective agency for Africans. Peter had reference power in abundance. This enabled him uh, and enhanced his transformational leadership style and ensured that his influence was not restricted to one institutional or organizational space. His worldview provided a point of orientation for his engagement across an extensive network he was able to exchange influence with a broad constituency of actors. He inspired confidence and was ready to deploy his expertise to provide moral support to colleagues and friends. He readily challenged organizational norms where he felt they were problematic and encouraged all of us to embrace creativity and innovation. He was concerned with personal and professional development of colleagues and mentees alike. And we can all attest to that. And he was consistent in doing this over the years. In essence, he developed leaders. So Peter da Costa's African knowledge revolution looks like this. A research agenda that is underpinned by a worldview of clearly defined African knowledge systems, deployed in conversation with other knowledge systems, communicated through an ensemble of accessible formats, that project Africa, African voice and agency, and applied through collaborative social action. That equals transformational change. This is not the task of one group or one center alone. It is the collective working across the continent that matters. Our collective buying to this agenda might just in time ensure that Peter da Costa's knowledge revolution is sustained. Let me now go to my concluding remarks by talking about Peter's uh, impact on the ALC as a whole in general terms. The logic and instinct of the African Leadership Center is to develop transform, transformed people who will in turn produce knowledge 
to transform their communities, organizations, and society. From the outset, its founding members agreed to build a community, a new community of leaders to generate cutting edge knowledge for peace, security, and development in Africa. It's always been interdisciplinary in that way. When Peter joined the ALC board, it felt like we were complete. He lived and shared ALC values unreservedly, addressing the unequal power dynamics around knowledge in which all concepts seemed to be based on received wisdom from outside was something that connected us in addition to projecting the voice of the next generation of leaders. How do we make knowledge forms that depict our realities become valid knowledge without being captured? How do we communicate it to ourselves and to those we deem vital to our common progress? The need to project the voices of young Africans and the provision of a platform that would showcase their contributions and apply the ideas and knowledge of change drives our collective effort. Peter felt at home and often spoke fondly about his love for the ALC and how inspired he was by ALC fellows. I think those who know him can attest to his conversations about the African Leadership Center. I would now like to close just as I started by reading another excerpt from my tribute to Peter at his memorial in London last September 4th. Our juggernaut of June is not lost. He only changed his location. I look around and I see your legacy everywhere. In the community of friends that you united, in your family that has joined your network of friends, in the future that you asked Yasin and Jara to contribute to building, through the ideals that you held true, that will live on through shared values. Friend, brother, colleague, we will miss you dearly, we miss you. We will remember you in the different faces of June that you embodied, metaphorically and literally. Your just reasoning will echo in our boardroom. We will heed your call to count first what matters most. The future of Africa that you nurtured and defended will reward your memory. Travel well to your next location, our juggernaut of June. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Public Debate on the ALC Pan-African Radio. For this and other programs, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Center. You're listening to the ALC Africa Radio. 